All right, if I can get your attention, we get the show on the road. As you know, this is our third lesson in a 10-week series, so every Monday lunch here, we hope, uh, consecutive Mondays for a total of 10, we'll finish before Thanksgiving. We're in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, um, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and this lesson is going to be primarily about making a deal. A lot of you guys are in businesses where you're constantly trying to make a deal, right? Uh, and you've heard the, the word New, New Testament or Old Testament. That's basically what a, what a testament is. It's a covenant or a deal. And Israel had the old deal, and now we have the new deal. Jesus ushered in the new deal of grace that we have now. And so chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians is primarily about he's contra contrasting the old deal and the new deal because some false teachers had come into the church at Corinth and they were still promoting the old deal and trying to sway the people in the church there back to the old deal. And so Paul is writing this letter to correct that and he's going to give a really wonderful a contrast between the old deal and the new deal. And in today's movie clip, Kramer, he also got a great deal on the subway. Hey! <laughs> I knew you thought uh, Kramer might lose that money, but no, it's safe with him. <laughs> all right, we're all familiar with the TV show, Let's Make a Deal, right? We've all seen that show, Let's Make a Deal. There are three curtains, and they bring somebody out of the audience up there, and the host gives them one of the curtains, right? Behind one of the curtains is a good deal. It has value. And so he gets to see that and says, you can keep this, or we'll offer you a new deal. There's a better deal behind one of the curtains here. They tell you this better deal is there. You can trade for the better deal, but you have to give up the old deal for the new deal. Some people like to keep the old deal because they can see it. And they know what it, what it is. They don't want to lose it. They have a fear of loss. Even though they're told that there's a better deal, they're willing to keep the old deal. They're afraid to give up something that they have, that they can see, touch, and define. Well, the Old Covenant in the, in, the, in the Bible, the Old Covenant of law is the old deal. It's just like that as well. And I think when Israel tried to keep the Old Covenant of law, they basically would fail, and then they go, okay, starting now. And then they'd fail, and starting now, see? Uh, but that doesn't work in God's economy. Spiritually, we also have three curtains to choose from. We have three deals to choose from. One is the old original deal. It's the law. Think of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is God's holy, righteous standard. So it's a good deal because God reveals what it would take for us to get to heaven. How good would you have to be? 
How righteous and holy would you have to be to go to heaven? Here it is, the Ten Commandments. He's given it to us. This is my holy, righteous standard. It's perfect. This deal, keeping the Ten Commandments, appeals to our pride. It appeals to our way of life. And we see the naivety of Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 when Moses brings them God's word, which is God wants to make this deal with you. You keep his commandments, and he will bless you in every way. Do you want to make that deal? And out of their moral, ethical naivety, they think they're much better than they actually are, have more self-control than they actually have, they said, absolutely. It appealed to their pride. Of course we can do that. No problem. It's very much like we do all the time, and everybody you know, know does all the time. I mean, you, I remember, you know, witnessing to somebody many times, and they're going, well, I'm, you know, I'm a good person. I believe in the Ten Commandments. I go to church. I give money. I do this, that, and the other. So, yeah, I think I'm going to heaven. I mean, I don't need any of that. I'm a good person. And that's the way Israel was. We've got our stuff together. We're good. We can do this. We can keep these commandments, right? So that was the old deal, and it appealed to their pride. The problem, of course, was they were all, as we are, they are all flawed individuals. I've been in, t teaching many Bible studies, and I've always asked the question, I'll do it again, is there anybody here who's absolutely perfect? Yay! We still have a 0% hand-raising with that question, right? Uh, and so that's the problem. God's given His perfect holy standard, and they can't keep it. It should lead them to the knowledge that they need a Savior. That's the gospel. Uh, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God in His love has provided the means by which we can be in His presence and be considered perfect and holy and righteous. And that is the atoning work of Christ on the cross, His free gift to us, which we receive by faith. But the world as we know it has that same pride that Israel had and said, we can do it, we can keep it, we're good. Then there's the second deal, the second curtain, and it's the adversary's deal. This is the adversary of God who's pushing this. And he's saying, okay, uh, you couldn't keep that law. You couldn't keep God's standard. It's not fair anyway. I mean, how could God give you a law like thou shalt not covet? I mean, who doesn't desire? Who doesn't have a little bit of covet covetousness there, right? That ain't right. What you really ought to do is decide your own rules. And so we have the beginning of world religions. And so behind curtain number two is pick your own religion or make up your own. That's how all the religions in the world besides Christianity are made. People just made them up. Why? Because in their heart, they know there's a God and that he has a standard. And in their rejecting him and his refusal, 
in their refusal of him, they're basically saying, I'm going to do it a different way. I'm going to do it my way, right? That's curtain number two, world religions. I mean, pick one. You know, I took a course at seminary, comparative religions. In a sense, they're all the same. Buddhism has its four noble truths and the eightfold path, right? In other words, if you do everything just according to this formula, your works and your compliance, you'll be saved. You'll go to heaven. Islam has the five pillars of faith. Keep thee and do these five good deeds and these works and keep these laws and you'll go to heaven. Mormons have a system of morals and laws and good works as well. All religions like that are the same. It's all about what human beings are doing. It's like telling a human being who's on the coast of California, you know, to get to heaven, you need to swim to Hawaii. What's the problem? <laughs> or telling one of us here, looking at the rest of you, you probably have a vertical jump about like I do, and saying, okay, you need to, to dunk a basketball. What's the problem? You need to high jump eight feet. What's the problem? The bar is set too high. It's impossible. But in our pride, we want to come up with our own way, do our own thing. We have a God of our own choosing. I think God ought to be this way. My view of God is this. So you come up with your own God and your own religion. That's door number two. And all the time, Satan is back there saying, absolutely, this is, you have the right to choose. You have freedom of choice. Religious freedom. Israel historically actually traded their old deal for door number two. They end up, you read the, all the historical books, they end up in idolatry. Idolatry all the other religion, Canaanite religions. And then, of course, there's door number three, the new deal, the better deal. And it's God's covenant, new covenant of grace. God has taken the initiative to provide salvation for us. What we could not do for ourselves, God has done. And so God has sent his own son, the incarnation, into the world to provide the sacrifice, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for us. And he accomplished that by atoning for our sins so that we might be saved. We receive it by faith. We believe in it. And it becomes ours. God imputes his righteousness to us. Uh, it's the best deal. Because you get unconditional forgiveness. All you got to do is receive it by faith, uh, commit yourself to it, not works. You're not on a performance basis. Paul's going to say in today's lesson, you're free. You have liberty. You don't have the pressure. Remember last week we talked about the safety net? You've got the freedom of that safety net below you to catch you when you fall. So why would they ever want to go back to the old? In Corinth, 
these false teachers had come in in the church at Corinth, and they were trying to sway them into coming back to the old deal. This is great to believe in Christ and call yourself a Christian, but you also need to do this work and this work and this, and you need to do this, and you need to eat kosher, and you need to be circumcised. What were they doing? The old covenant has still got its hooks in you (laughs) and trying to drag you back down into a system of works. Well, the prophets and the New Testament authors said there was at least five reasons why the new deal, the new covenant, is better than the old covenant. So if you have your Bible there, electronic device, go back to Jeremiah with me. I'd just like to go over those real quick with you. Uh, And you see that from way back when, from the very beginning, God had this plan of sending Christ into the world. He gave Israel the perfect righteous standard of the Ten Commandments so that they would know that they don't measure up and need a Savior. So in Jeremiah 31, after Israel has completely blown it big time, and they're getting ready to go into captivity, God has judged them, is going to discipline them by sending them into captivity. The, the, uh, the bad guys from Babylon are on their way. And so Jeremiah says, but don't give up hope. When you're in captivity in Babylon, don't give up hope. Because in the future, look at verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. In the future, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. You have an old covenant, I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel with you, not like, it'll be a different covenant, verse 32, not like the old covenant, which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, so that way we know he's talking about the Ten Commandments and the covenant they made there. And here's the problem, that was the, my covenant, which they broke, they couldn't, they couldn't keep it, they broke it. Is there anything wrong with the law? Is there anything wrong with the Ten Commandments? No. What was wrong was with the people. They were flawed, just like us. They couldn't keep it. So he says it won't be like the old covenant. This new covenant will be different and better. And so verse 33, he says, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days. I will put my law within them and on their heart. So the first problem of the Old Covenant, it was written externally on tablets of stone. It was in black and white. They could read it, but it wasn't in their heart. It wasn't a part of them. They had no heart for it. They still wanted to do the other stuff. And so you could say the New Covenant, because God gives us His Spirit and changes our heart, softens our heart, and changes our heart. And the difference is, with the old covenant, it was an obligation. You're obligated to keep this law. So the old covenant was, I have to do this. And that was their approach. Okay, we have to do this. But with the new covenant, here's the difference. With the new covenant and a changed heart, I want to do this. That's a big change, isn't it? Remember when you were kids and they 
drug you, put your new clothes on you, and made you take a bath and put your new clothes on you and drug you off to church. Do I have to go? No, please. You were obligated. You have to do it. But with the new covenant, God is saying, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to give you a heart for my word and for me and to keep my law. So now we want to. It's not saying we're perfect, but that is a tremendous difference to be obligated to, to have to, and versus to want to. And that's what God has done, and it was predicted by the prophets. I will put my law within, within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Second thing, second problem. Uh, people had to teach themselves, okay? You got this law that says, the fourth commandment, uh, to rest on the Sabbath. What does that mean? What does rest mean? What does not working mean? What's included in the not working? Well, Israel got their finest minds together and came up with like 39 categories of work. And under each category, they had about eight or ten subcategories of what work is, what you couldn't do. If you go to Israel right now, on a Saturday, you can't use the elevator because that's work. See? Now they have a Sabbath elevator, and in the Sabbath elevator, they programmed it to go to every floor. So on Saturday, if you stay in a high-rise hotel, you get to go to every floor. Ding! Ding! If you're on the 20th floor, it's going to take you a while. It's, it's crazy. You can't legislate this stuff. You have to have a heart for it. And so by giving you a heart for it, you don't need somebody to teach you what it means not to work or teach you what it means to rest. You have a heart for it. It's the spirit of that law that's important, not the letter. So all the New Testament authors talk about the Sabbath, and they, they say, you've abused it, you've ruined it. God intended it for your good, and you've made some difficult work out of it. Thirdly, in verse 34, they had to have mediators, priests, in the temple to make the sacrifices. So they no longer need the priests with the new covenant because Jesus has made one sacrifice that is efficient and sufficient for all sins. You don't have to do those sacrifices over and over and over again. There's no need for priests. And besides, what was the problem with having priests between you and God? You look at the history of Israel, there was, there was a whole lot of greedy, self-indulgent priests. I'm sure there's none of those today. Uh, case in point, Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2.12, he was the high priest and his two sons in 1 Samuel 2.12, set up prostitutes in the temple. They were called priestesses. Very convenient, right? And they also stole from the temple. And that's what you were dealing with historically. 
You don't need those anymore. You have direct access to God in the new covenant. Fourthly, the old covenant failed to permanently remove sin. It only covered it up temporarily, waiting for the perfect sacrifice, God's Son, in the future. But the new covenant is based around Jesus' sacrifice, which is perfect and of infinite value. Therefore, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven because it was Jesus. And then fifthly, in verse 34, he talks about forgiveness. The old covenant was conditioned. It was conditional. If you perform, if you keep the law, then I will bless you. It's conditioned upon your performance. It had strings attached, consequences. But the new covenant is unconditional. And if you read it, you can see there at the end of verse 34, what does God say? A series of I wills. I will forgive. No, no condition. Their sin I will remember no more unconditionally. So obviously the new covenant is way better than the old. It's not even close. It's not even close. So turn back to 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. We'll pick up where we left off last week. And you can see there uh, in verse 12 and 13 before this, he's upset because Paul knew that the false teachers had a foothold in the church at Corinth. This is during Paul's third missionary journey. He's in Asia Minor, which is across the Aegean Sea from Greece. And he's worried about them. He's gotten news that some bad things have happened. Then on his way, he got arrested. He was beat up and threatened, finally got out of jail, uh, sent Titus on before him to check on the church and bring back news. So now Paul gets to Troas where he was going to meet Titus, and he's not there. So he's all upset. He's worried. He has grief. What happened? Is there something wrong with Titus? Is the church falling away? And then Titus shows up, and he's got good news. The church received Paul's letter in the right spirit, and they repented. And so now, you see in verse 14, 214, Paul is rejoicing. And he's got a great, he uses great imagery there in verse 14 through 16. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. In other words, God is using Paul and his disciples as he's using us to reveal the gospel, the good news of salvation. That's that sweet aroma of the Lord. For we are a fragrance. This is imagery. Uh, we have a smell, and he's going to use the Bigger imagery of a Roman victory parade. When a Roman general had some great victory, he got to come to Rome and have this huge victory parade throughout Main Street and be hailed a hero and given all kinds of medals and rewards and what have you. And they would have this great parade, and you'd have all the soldiers and 
Behind them, you'd have the priests, and they'd be swinging incense that had a real pungent odor, and it was supposed to be going up to the gods, right? And behind them, though, were the prisoners who had been taken in the battles, and they're in chains, and they're being drugged along. And what Paul is saying, the fragrance, the odor from that incense to the Romans is victory. But the very same incense, the very same fragrance to the prisoners is death. Smells like death. It's horrible. And so Paul's using that image of the gospel. When he preaches the gospel, it has two different responses. Two different responses. One, the people who believe in Jesus as their Savior are forgiven and know that they're saved and will spend eternity in glory with God. They are excited, happy. It's a beautiful, fragrant aroma of life. But to those who reject it, if you ever share Christ with somebody and they reject it, sometimes, they, I've had this happen many times, they say, are you saying I'm going to hell? No, I was just telling you about the love of God that he gave it through his son. You're saying I'm going to hell. That's what Paul's talking about here. When they reject the message, to them it's a message of death. And so the very same fragrance has two opposing effects. We're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and we're a fragrance to those who are perishing, not believing. To the one in aroma from death to death, to the other in aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things? Paul said, this is incredible. We've delivered the gospel. God's used us to do this stuff. Many people are being saved, a fragrant aroma. Who am I that God would use me to save people's life, Paul says. I'm not adequate in myself to do this. It's the power of God in me. It's the gospel message, and it's the Holy Spirit who's opening their heart and mind to the truth of the gospel. Paul's just the messenger. He just showed up. So who is adequate for these things? And then he takes a shot in verse 17 at the false teachers. Those guys there in Corinth that are the false teachers, they got something for sale. They have an ulterior motive, and we're not like them. We're just men who are being used by God to preach the gospel. And then in, in uh, chapter 3, he's going to continue that line of thought, except now he's going to contrast because the false teachers are holding on to and trying to teach the old covenant. Don't leave the old covenant. You know, keep it with the new covenant, they're saying. Keep all the laws and what have you. He's going to give a contrast. Paul is going to contrast the old and the new. And why the old? It had some benefit. It had some glory in revealing God's perfect holy standard. But the new covenant is far better. It's effective. It actually brings forgiveness and salvation. So he says to them, apparently in verse 1, he's, the false teachers brought letters of recommendation from who knows where, 
these guys are really sharp, believe what they say, you know, blah, blah, blah. But Paul said, are we beginning to commend ourselves again like they did with their letters of recommendation? Verse 2, you are our letter written on in our hearts, known and read by all men. What's he saying? Your changed life, your transformed life is our letter of recommendation. That's what proves that the gospel of Christ is true because it changes lives. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, their changed life is like a letter of recommendation for Christ. Written with not, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. So the Holy Spirit has come into you and dwelt in you and changed your life from the inside out. You couldn't write a better recommendation than that for the gospel, a changed life. And verse 4, he continues on, In such confidence that changed life as evidence, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, that now, not that we are adequate, so he goes back to that adequacy, not that we are adequate in ourselves, and here's his humility, it's not because we're good speakers or we're that smart or we're that great salesmen like they say they are, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Paul's new covenant ministry sells itself. But if the ministry, by the way, he says, the, the, the new covenant is not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And just like we said earlier, what's the difference? The new covenant, the Spirit moves your heart, changes your heart, transforms you, and so you become a different person, a spiritual person. But the letter, just the external law, in the Old Covenant, kills. How so? How does it kill? You couldn't keep it. The penalty for disobedience is death. But the Spirit gives life. The Spirit of God, changing hearts, gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, now he's going to go to another great story, another great image in the Old Testament. And that is the story that he takes from uh, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, God said, Moses, come up on top of the mountain. I'm going to give you more laws. And Moses said, oh, if I could just see you. And God said, you can't stand to see me close up, but I'm going to let you see my glory. And so the glory of God passed by him. And when he came down from the mountain, that glory was shining off, radiating off of his face, much like the sun shines off the moon. The moon doesn't have any glory, but the sun reflects it, right? In the same way, Moses radiated the glory of God on a temporary basis. And when Moses first came down the mountain, he noticed their reaction. When they saw that glory of God in Moses' face, they went, whoa, whoa. And they were scared. The fear of God was in them. 
So when Moses spoke, they listened. And so when Moses Moses noticed that it was fading away, he put a veil over his face so that they couldn't see that it was fading away. And Paul uses that story that they well knew to say, here's the deal. That old covenant of law that God gave him on Mount Sinai, and he came down and radiated the glory of it, had a benefit. It had some glory, but it faded away. It was temporary because they couldn't keep it. But he's going to say the new covenant's glory is far greater and it is permanent and it is effective. So he says, verse 7, If the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? It's even better. For the ministry of condemnation, the old one, has glory. Much more so does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, the the law, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it, the new covenant. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So the glory of the new covenant remains with us and doesn't fade away. It's permanent. Having therefore such a hope, that is our belief It's desired expectancy. We translate that uh, in English hope, but in the Greek it's desired expectancy. You fully expect it. To you it's a reality, and it's something you greatly desire. And that builds boldness in our speech. We're willing to go out and share the gospel. And we're not like Moses. He used to put a veil over his face so the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end as it was fading away. He didn't want them to see that. He wanted to keep that same fear in them that they had at the first. But their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened for until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant law, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. What is he saying? People who still hang on to the old covenant are still looking at Moses' veiled face. They can't see the truth that it was temporary, in other words. And verse 16, the difference, the contrast, whenever a man turns to the Lord through Christ, the veil is taken away, and they can see the truth. Now the Lord is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom, freedom. What does he mean by that? In what sense are we free? Uh, You know, a lot of people ask, and it's a a great question, uh, in what sense are we today in the church subject to the law? Well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. The law is perfect and good and righteous. Not one stroke or tittle will be changed. 
He's talking about the moral law. The Ten Commandments are the moral law. They did away with all the ceremonial stuff that, that revolved around these sacrifices. And they did away with all the stuff that just pertained to the nation of Israel because it was judged, you see. But what we've got now is something that's better, that is free, the liberty that is in having Christ because we don't have a judgment based on the moral law. That's the difference. We're still subject to the moral law. We're still, still supposed to keep it. You would think that you would want to now that you have a heart for it. You should have a desire to keep it. But now you're not going to be judged on judgment day. You're not going to be judged by it. In this temporal world, you'll probably be disciplined because of it if you break it. But you will not be judged like the rest of the world will be judged by it. The, the whole world, us including, is going to be judged by God's moral standard, the Ten Commandments. But here's the difference. On Judgment Day, we're arm in arm with Jesus. And in that relationship, God sees Jesus atone for our sins. Well, he's with Jesus. That's taken care of. So we have freedom. Again, remember last week the safety net? It's like working with a safety net. You're free. If you fall, you'll be caught and lifted up and restored. And so the new covenant is far better because it has freedom. The old covenant brings death. But we all, verse 18, and here's the life now. That's judgment day. But now, verse 18, what do we do now? What's the application now? Here it is. We all, with unveiled face, we now see the truth. We can read God's Word and see the truth. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We, in our relationship with Christ, have that glory. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are being, this is a process of spiritual growth, we are being transformed. In the new covenant, God promised, you can see the prophet Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah said in the new covenant, God would give us his spirit to make this work. And so God's Spirit has indwelt all believers. Whether you know it or not, it's still true. It's a passive thing. When you believe, God did it and dwelt you with His Holy Spirit in order to lead you, guide you, teach you, convict you. Have you noticed that your conscience is a little, little more sensitive now? Your conscience is heightened because the Holy Spirit really is convicting you your old bad habits. So we have God's Spirit now, and in that process, what's happening? We are being transformed into the same image of Christ. We have Christ in our lives. He's, he's a part of us, and we're a part of Him. And in that relationship, with the Spirit's help, we are being transformed in the same image of Christ from glory 
to glory. In other words, degree to degree of glory. You're growing, changing, just as from the Lord, the Spirit, who is in you, changing you. So the old covenant was a diagnosis without a cure. The new covenant has a cure. Let me finish, conclude with, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. The New Testament author of Hebrews makes a great case for this. In chapters 8 through 10, I just want to highlight a few of the, of the verses for you. Chapter 8, Hebrews 8, verse 6, talking about Jesus being better. Jesus is also the mediator of a better covenant. And this new covenant which has been enacted has better promises. Forgiveness, spiritual growth, salvation, eternity, way better than the old. Verse 13, chapter 8, verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he just quoted Jeremiah 31, by the way. And then he says, when the author, Jeremiah, said a new covenant, God has made the first covenant, the old deal, obsolete. It had its purpose. Now it's obsolete. It's gone. It's unneeded. You can't have it both ways. You've got to leave the old deal and take the new deal. And whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Then in chapter 9, he talks about all the priestly services that they did in Israel's history and all the animal sacrifices they made and everything. But then in verse 11, again, the contrast, Hebrews 9, 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle in heaven, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of animals, goats and calves like they did, but he entered through his own blood, that perfect blood was sinless. He entered the holy place once for all, just had to do it one time because it was perfect and of infinite value having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, that's the old stuff they did, if that sanctifies, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit of God offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he cleanse your conscience? You know you're forgiven from dead works to serve the living God. All that stuff on your own <laughs> is dead works. Now you're in a relation with him and you serve the living God. And then in chapter 10, verse 11, in the old days, every priest daily did sacrifices that could never take away sins. They just covered them up temporarily. But now, verse 12, in the new covenant, 
Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. It was complete. It's over. For by the offering that he made, he has perfected. Can you believe he can say that about us? He's perfected us based on what he did. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified in his name. So again, the old covenant, you have to do it. You're obligated. The new covenant, I want to do it. I'm a new person. I want to do it. I know that life is easier. It's less complicated. It's better. And I know that God has a great plan for my life and that I'll be with Him in eternity. I want to do it. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank You so much for blessing us with Your Word, this great contrast between the old and new. People want to hold on to the old. They may have been raised in the old. They have traditions, they have things they're desperately trying to hold on to. But God, you've given us something new and better. Jesus and his atoning work for us on the cross. And we receive it by faith and you have made it ours. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.